Section following chapter 12 of Silly and Its Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. The Dane's Grave. Sad were the days and bloody that fell upon merry England at the close of the 10th century. The race of Alfred had degenerated and dwindled away. Its feeble scepter had passed into the nervous grasp of a Danish rover, Canute the Great. Nor was his title of supreme power undeserved. His dooms, or laws, were but a restoration of the old Saxon ordinances, telling us by their mild and gentle spirit the secret of their author's successful usurpation of the throne. Were it not for his Charter de Foresta, the authenticity of which we cannot doubt, we find in his statutes nothing which a legislator of the present time might not adopt. But the soul of a northern Nimrod breathes in that awful sentence, Sin nobilis servum in regina foresta, occideret nobilites cariat, si liber liberatat, si servus corio. Footnote. If a noble shall have killed a stag in the royal forest, let him be deprived of his nobility, if a freeman of his freedom, if a serf of his skin. Footnote ends. Yet firm and paternal as were the character of the government of the new dynasty, the state of England, of the neighbouring coasts, and of its seas, was dark and melancholy. Upon the province of Neustria, the Norsemen had come down in a black swarm, and had given it the name of those stern settlers. Footnote, Normandy. Footnote ends. The Saxon Witten had confirmed the throne to the conqueror, and his followers had found a resting place in many parts of England, especially in the kingdom of Northumbria. Yet the children of the north were not yet satisfied with plunder. The sea sent forth its rovers pillaging and dealing in massacre against every one, but chiefly against the holy men who dwelt in monasteries. The monks of Chester long told of the fearful inroad from which they then suffered. Everywhere there was terror and desolation and death. Bale fires were lighted on each headland whenever the raven standard was descried. At the first glimmer of their ominous warning, men took bill and bow. The church bells tolled for glass, and from lip to lip flew the news. It is the Dane, the Dane. Among those martial wanderers, none was more dreaded nor more terrible than the fiercest of the Viking year, the young berserker of the north, Ulf of the blood of Thor. He was no mean pirate. Fame and not plunder was his object. He struck heavily and often, but it was at the mighty, not the lowly and defenceless, that he aimed his blow. Yet there was an exception to this lofty rule he hated, with the intensity ever inspired by a religious difference, the monks and nuns of Christendom. Wherever he went, he consigned their hallowed dwellings to the flames. He smote and spared not. And there were many places of this sort easily assailable upon the shores or on the islands of the Anglian seas. Especially had he wreaked his wrath on the sawlings, or silly. Not then, as now, a cluster of mere islets, but one great main land covered with a dense population, and possessing several religious establishments. Around the soft climate and rich shores of the devoted spot, Ulf the Dane loved to linger. He burned the church of St. Helens, and surprised and sacked the ancient shrine of St. Lydes, and laid waste the little tabernacle of St. Theona. The Isle of Enor was far too strong to fear the attack of any rover, and the fair abbey of Inscore defied his efforts. Several times he endeavoured to take it by stratagem, but the pious monks kept that committed to their charge and held him at bay. At that time, members of the religious orders were less scrupulous about bearing arms than they became in other and safer days. The Saxon recluse drew an arrow to the head 
and donned a cask and wielded a sword and browbill in defence of his dwelling and of his life. Footnote. This account of the military spirit of the Saxon monks is by no means overcharged. Before the conquest, both bishop and abbot often rode in harness. Any reference to the chronicles of those times will confirm this statement. Frossart's Bishop of Norwich, so late as the 14th century, is well known. So when Ulf threatened the abbey ere its vassals could be gathered together for its protection, Leofric himself, the good abbot, put on armour of proof and superintended the defence. Woe to the nithering, the dastard, who shrank from his duty then, his penance, was to sit upon the stone floor and to dine with the animals, after even the serfs had finished. But neither obedientarius nor novice had ever thus been slack in danger. All knew the peril, and all met it, like sons of Hengist and Horsa. There was a hereditary antipathy between the two races that needed no violence to stimulate it into action. The brave Leofric set an example that was cheerfully followed, the menace thrall of the convent would have scorned to hold back even could he by his remissness hear those magical words theow and isne be thou no longer but go forth folk free and stand up a man it may be supposed from this recital that the feelings of ulf the viking towards the abbey and the brethren of inniscore or tresco were anything but friendly they were in fact exasperated by frequent failure and slight defeat he lay off the shore, unwilling to leave it, and yet unable to get anything by remaining. All the stores and stock were collected together in places of safety. If he landed to hunt the wild boars, then numerous of the older brakes, from which this part of the island derived its name, in score meaning the Isle of Elders, he was liable to sudden onslaughts from the Thanes and Franklins who supported the abbey. Footnote, perhaps there are two derivations. Footnote ends. And even the monks and their men-at-arms, as they passed the walls, skirmished with him, and once, as he went across the causeway that spanned and still spans the abbey pool, they took him at a disadvantage and encountered him so home in the narrow passage, where numbers were of no avail, that he was driven into the lake, and would have been slain or taken had not a reinforcement from the ships come up and rescued him. Judge ye, therefore, if there were not bitterness of heart between the fathers and Ulf the Invincible, he was for the first time checked and checked by an adversary, in his eyes the most hateful and the most despicable. He, like a true Dane, quaffed deep draughts of mead and metheglin and hydromel and uttered threats of vengeance, and planned new attempts in all of which he failed. No sooner had he landed in force than the crescent beacon of the great tower blazed up and was answered from the strong castle of Enor and from the places where the watch and ward were kept by Vassal and Vavasor, and the light of spearheads and helmets glinted from every brow till Ulf was compelled to go back sullenly and re-embark. So passed the time until the bravest of the Viking here was like to be foiled by a cow and to sail back bootless and laggard unto his own land. At length fortune threw in his way a chance of success, even when his prospects seemed desperate. Leofric, abbot of St. Nicholas, was a high-spirited and choleric man, holding the rover cheap and laughing to scorn his threats. The monk had been a soldier in his youth, and still felt a kindred sympathy with chain-mail and a trusty brand. It was he who had driven back in the melee the fierce Ulf, and had well-nigh mastered his sword. So if the unchristened Dane fumed and fretted against the shavelings, yet ye may suppose that the stout priest railed at the Lurdane, as it were then the fashion to turn the Scandinavian buccaneers, and held it foul scorn to be cooped up in his walls by a rover of the sea. The feeling of bravado and of defiance soon became irresistible. One day the abbot looked abroad over the fair lands of Inniscore. The sun lay like molten silver upon their bosom. 
in the valleys and amid the brakes soft shadows floated like spirits brooding in a moment of repose over the earth near the shore the gay galleys of ulf rested upon their shadows seeming so innocent and yet like many a beautiful deceit full of peril the abbot frowned as he gazed son of a sea-wolf he muttered thou shalt no longer coop me up within my walls on a day so heavenly bid the lay servitors saddle my palfrey and unleash the brachs we will forth to hunt a boar if all the demons of valhalla were in our way thou Alfgar the cellarer shalt be my squire of the body and thou young edmund my connect arm my children and to horse footnote the word connect was equivalent to youth footnote ends the reckless spirit of the impetuous churchman ran like an electric shock through the bosoms of his train soon they bound them for the chase wild boars then roamed through the woods of Scilly, and so did the grey wolf even in the time of leyland the former were numerous at tresco so well practised at the sport and tired of their long confinement the garrison and many of the monks of st nicholas sallied forth from the great gates they were a gallant train athelstan the conqueror had scarcely ridden with more bravery when he wrested these lordships from the pagans and bestowed them upon the church perhaps with their domains they had inherited from him their love of sylvian sports for which indeed the county of cornwall has always been celebrated since tristram invented his famous mot upon the horn and hunted in the greenwood they went forth gaily taking no heed of the raven that flew so near them and who watched their progress as the cavalcade wound round the head of the lake and disappeared their course was apparently pleasant and secure the day was spent in their unwonted enjoyment and it was evening ere they returned bringing with them a huge boar slain by the hand of the abbot himself they reached without interruption the little pier at the lower town and were passing the breaks that clothed the extremity of the abbey hill when their progress was rudely barred a flight of arrows drove back the carls and the knechts who formed the advance as they turned and fled from every quarter arose a shout of whose terrible import none was ignorant ulf to the charge ulf for the raven standard and on came the ferocious invaders and at their head was ulf brandishing his spear and looking in his wrath as black as the demon whom he served the abbot saw his danger but faltered not in the good old saxon times every man was brave and every man was inured for war and expert in arms calling to his train to close up leofric shouted st nicholas for innescore and charged home the fiery onset broke through the danish ranks and left in their gore three of the bravest there the way to the abbey was now open and all was clear and safe but the blood of leofric was up he feared lest the danes should cut off some of the prickers or footmen wheeling round his horse and placing himself in the rear he covered the retreating force he shook on high his boar-spear and remembered the days of his youth and seemed more like a gallant thane than a cowled monk ulf pressed upon him as he backed his steed and they exchanged thrusts until blood flowed on both sides and once the dane went down when they had reached the stranger's house which was just within bowshot of the walls and the skirmish was well nigh over the abbot halted for a moment to look back upon his disappointed foe that moment of delay was indeed a fatal one for him a stray arrow from a scandinavian bow pierced right through the eye of the abbot's charger even unto his brain it rolled over stunning its rider in the fall before the train already far in advance could return to rescue him ulf was upon his prostrate foe he was dragged from the spot and hurried into the covert and up the slope and though the saxons flung themselves upon their foes with all the energy of despair the vantage gained was too great to be repaired their zeal and devotion were thrown away the hunting party had come indeed to a gloomy end the servant of the cross was vanquished 
Leofric the Saxon was a captive in the hands of Ulf the Dane. False shaveling, said the Viking to his prisoner when they were on board. False shaveling, I read ye to know that thou shalt dearly rue the hour in which thou wast bold enough to defy the son of my father's. I will carve the spread eagle upon thy vile body until every bone and muscle is laid raw and bare and until thou diest to death viler than that of the unhappy prisoners whom thou castest down to rot in thy dungeons. Footnote. A common torture applied by the Danes to their prisoners was to bind one of them firmly against a tree with his body naked and his feet and arms outstretched and then with a sharp knife to cut the figure of an eagle with spread wings upon the breast. By removing the skin, the form of the bird was shown on the raw flesh. Footnote ends. False pagan, quoth the abbot, I would have you take tent also that Leofric the Saxon hath in his veins the blood of a line of kings, yea, even of the great Alfred himself. If thou find him man-sworn or nithering like a base serf, bury him in a basket of wicker work in the next marsh, as was the custom of our forefathers, touching recreants and runagates. Yet it is ill to speak thus. Unworthy servant of the church, though I be, I fear not to look death in the face, and thou, Ulf, art a king's son, therefore it becometh thee, not to boast thus largely against a fallen foe. By the skull in which my father quaffs mead, and feasts in Valhalla, replied the Dane, thou speakest sooth, bold monk, the eagle knows the eagle, and the viking honours the spirit of the brave. To-day shalt thou pledge me in the banquet of bards, and to-morrow thou shalt do me reason. So they feasted together, the prince of Denmark and the Saxon abbot, in a long and loud carouse. It ended not till midnight. The guests separated mutually well pleased with each other. Pity it were, said Elf to his armour-bearer, that this Saxon is a cow-dweller in cloisters. By the shade of Odin, had he been a sea-rover, he would have drained deep draughts from the skulls of his slaughtered foes. I would that he might take service with me. Days, however, passed by, and Leofric, though unharmed, was still the guest rather than the prisoner of Ulf. In truth, the fault was not with the abbot. He spoke often of his ransom, but could come to no agreement with his captor, whose demands were exorbitant, amounting even to the surrender of the abbey. So they made no pact, but yet dwelt in fealty together, two bold and fiery spirits, each respecting the other. Sometimes Leofric would speak to Ulf about religion, and endeavour to convert him to Christianity. He would read to him the holy book, and expound its mysteries, and make them as plain as possible to the somewhat slow and uncultivated mind of the Dane. In some things, Ulf was an apt pupil. He loved not the gospel and its tidings of peace, but his whole soul kindled, and he brightened with the warrior's pride when the abbot read to him of the triumphs of Gideon and of Joshua, and of the chivalrous Maccabees. Then, indeed, his eye reddened with its inward lightning, and he professed himself enamoured of that glorious faith and ready to embrace it and to do battle in its cause. He assured the Holy Father that he could now understand why the Saxon Brotherhood were such lusty men of war, since they believed so stirring a creed. The good abbot felt rather embarrassed at these compliments, and groaned in spirit at the blindness and perverseness of his heathen convert. But he said nothing, being, as it were, in the lion's den, and fearing to arouse the wrath of his martial neophyte. One day the abbot had been explaining to him the history of David, whose connection with Jonathan reminded Ulf of their own, and, as old Joinville says in his quaint French, Soncor attenderate, but when the priest spake of the miraculous victory of the shepherd's son of Jesse over Goliath, the Dane laughed him to scorn. He was but a little man. That same giant Goliath, said he, there be in our sagas many mighty men of renown in other days, to whom he would be but a babe. Yes, the great goddess Freya herself is, even according to thy story, of loftier stature than thy dog of a Philistine. 
he died the death he deserved. What bot were it to be a warrior, and not be able to defy a boy's sling? I like not thy champion, Abbot, nor do I value his arms. Footnote. Bot, that is, boot, profit. Footnote ends. My son, replied Abbot Leofric gravely, do not thou jest on holy things which are peradventure too hard for thee. Nathless, said Ulf, though I like well thy God's spiel, and especially that portion of it relating to war, wherein did the Jews approve themselves stout soldiers, I reck little of thy miracle of a stone. Thine is but a poor hero, if he worketh not by manlier weapons, nor in a nobler way. Such is not the slayer of warriors. Such are not the gods of Valhalla, nor in our eve of a fight the choosers of the slain. Footnote. Such ere he sheathed his bloody sword, as choosers of the slain adored, the yet unchristened Dane, Scott. Three weird women were supposed to go through a host on the eve of a battle, and select the victims of the morrow. Footnote ends. But come thou, friend abbot, we will land and approach thy walls. It may be that when they behold thee in bonds, their hearts will relent, and they will consent to purchase thy liberty, even at a worthy price. So they disembarked and proceeded together to the abbey. They approached the building without hesitation, for Leofric was a hostage in their hands, as he walked beside Ulf, and discoursed concerning his ransom. The abbot's heart was sad and depressed. The words of the proud scoffer had galled him, and had wounded his faith as a Christian man. Surely, he thought, this pagan will not escape scot-free. He cometh against us with a sword, and with a shield, and with the weapons of the flesh, but God and St. Nicholas are greater than he. By this time they had reached the walls, upon which were gathered the prior, and the sacristan, and the cellarer, and the obedient Yari, and the cloistered monks, and the novices, and the lay brethren, and the men-at-arms, and great was the outcry, and piercing the wail they made, when they saw their beloved lord a prey to the Egyptian, and a captive to his bow and spear. There was considerable bustle among them, and they conferred together eagerly, and then many of them left the ramparts. Meanwhile, Ulf parted a little from Leofric, and advanced towards the abbey, with the intention of addressing the prior, but he was cut short, and interrupted in a manner that he little expected. Even as Sisera was smitten by the hand of a woman, and Goliath struck down by the weapon of a peasant boy, so was the great warrior of the Danes, Ulf, the red-handed, punished for his blasphemy. One of the connects of the abbey, famed for his skill in the use of the sling, availed himself of a little postern gate, and while Ulf drew near, stole forward and approached him unobserved, under cover of the broken ground. Whirling his little leathern bag around his head, he sent the pebble it contained full at the bosom of Ulf. It entered there deeply and mortally. Not a word was spoken, nor did he give a cry, nor did he struggle, but at the feet of the abbot, and by the very instrument he had reviled, he bowed, he fell, and where he bowed, there he fell, dead. At the same moment, a sally was made from the gates, headed by the young connect, who had accompanied the abbot to the chase. The Danes were in no mood to resist, their hearts melted within them even to water. They therefore turned and fled, and Leofric was born in triumph to his old home with shouts and congratulations, and smiles and tears of welcome. The body of the Viking was likewise carried with them and laid down in the outer court, beneath the great oak tree in their midst. There was, at first, a talk of hanging it on a gibbet for the crows and kites to tear and rend, but Leofric sternly forbade all such unseemly treatment. Whatever Ulf might have been, bloody perhaps and ferocious, yet still he had not used the abbot unworthily, as, from the bitter feelings existing on either side, he might have been expected to do. So the monk, who himself a brave man, could appreciate bravery and worth in others, felt respect for his dead foe, and sorrowed over him, as over one who had begun to listen to the truth, and might perchance, in after days, have been a mighty champion of Christendom. And he looked sadly upon the cold, calm features of the royal youth, 
and bade them prepare him reverently for internment. Ulf could not lie in consecrated ground, for he was unbaptized. A grave was therefore made for him upon the brow of the pleasant hill that shields the abbey from the wind. It faced the east, and the sun might, at his uprising, throw a smile upon it. He was buried after the fashion of his people between smooth slabs of stone, and the place of his sepulture was known by tradition as the Dane's grave. Long centuries after, one sunny day in spring, a stranger, in whose veins ran the blood of the Danish kings, was standing on that very spot. As was before stated, the workmen, plying their pickaxes, broke into an antique grave lined with large flat stones and containing the skeleton of a man. There were in it no arms nor ornaments, but on a closer examination there was seen, upon the spot where the breast had been, a round pebble, such as would be fit for a sling. That stone is now on the mantelpiece of the drawing-room at the abbey. The bones were carefully collected and buried in holy ground, and we left the Dane's grave. End of section. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.